Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. The Federal Reserve's actions in the past few months in light of the COVID-19 crisis have been truly unprecedented in many ways. It not only pledged to buy an unlimited quantity of government debt, but also decided to support even the riskiest of corporate bonds. Uh, it lowered the target rate to 0 to 0.25% and announced in the June FOMC meeting that it's not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. So uh, we're recording this on June 24th. And as of now, there are many important questions to be answered from whether an injection of liquidity is propping up the financial markets in very unhealthy ways to uh, whether the lack of coordination between uh, fiscal and monetary policies could potentially exacerbate inequality uh, like after the 2000 financial crisis. Uh, and here to discuss some of the recent developments in policy and markets is Professor Alan Blinder. Uh, he is the Gordon S. Uh, Rinchler Memorial Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton University. And he previously served as the Vice Chairman of the Federal Reserve System and has written many best-selling books, including his latest, Advice and Dissent, Why America Suffers When Economics and Politics Collide. So uh, thanks so much for joining me remotely, Professor Blinder. Sure, glad to be with you. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is uh, Sam Lee, and uh, you're familiar with him. He uh, is an economics major at Princeton and uh, the head of research for Policy Punchline. Thanks so much for being here with me, Sam. Yep. Hello to both of you. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Tiger, and thank you for joining us, Professor Blinder. You're welcome. So, Professor Blinder, why don't we jump right in? Uh, would you mind just maybe first giving us an account from your perspective of the series of Fed actions in the past few months, uh, what attracted your attention as the most noteworthy or, or shocking? What are some of the decisions sure. that you liked or disliked? A, a little bit of background first. The Fed recognized fairly early on, I don't want to say before everybody, but before some people, that there was an economic catastrophe, potential economic catastrophe on our hands. And it's turned out to be more than potential and actual economic catastrophe. Um, unlike the economic catastrophe we had over a decade ago, the financial crisis. Um, this one began on the real side of the economy because of the pandemic, which affects both the ability of American businesses to supply goods and services and the willingness of American consumers to buy goods and especially services and started there and then threatened to and began to infect the financial system. See, this is the distinction I'm making. What happened in the financial crisis is bad things happened in the financial world and they started to infect the real economy. We had a recession. Uh, this is the opposite. The real economy started going to hell, to use a technical term. And the Fed figured this is going to wreak havoc in the financial system, and you may remember the stock market crashed in March, although it's come back, um, risk spreads, the interest rate differential between risky securities and treasuries widened, and a whole lot of other things either threatened to happen or started to happen. The Fed cannot uh, cure a pandemic. If they could, they would have done it already. The Fed cannot even replace the lost purchasing power of tens of millions of Americans who lose their jobs. Uh, it can lower interest rates, and as you mentioned, it did. But 
when nobody wants to go out the door to go to an auto uh, showroom or go out with a realtor to look at houses, uh, lowering the interest rate doesn't do a lot of good for uh, spending. So what the Fed could do is make sure that the, well, one way to put it is make sure that the damage to the financial system was limited to the stock market or almost limited to the stock market. And as I said, the stock market did tumble, though it's gotten most of that back. But the Fed made sure that other financial markets didn't fall into disarray, as happened in the early days of the financial crisis in 2008 and even into 2009, though mostly in uh, 2008. So what that meant is either buying or saying they were willing to buy a variety of assets. So not just treasuries, as you mentioned, risky, you said the riskiest, not quite the riskiest, but anyway, risky corporate debt, commercial paper. And to your question about what was the most extreme or unexpected or um, wild even uh, uh, thing that they, that they decided to do, they were given this task by the treasury, by the way, is the so-called Main Street lending facilities. Now, this is a very big misnomer. Main Street suggests the uh, pizza parlor and the goods and the bookstore and the little clothing store on Main Street. Uh, the Main Street lending facility was aimed for much, much bigger businesses than that. When the Fed first announced its terms, the minimum loan was gonna be a million dollars. So. You can try to imagine how many barbershops want to borrow a million dollars. Uh, they're now down to 250,000, uh, which enables, which is relevant to smaller businesses, but still not to very small businesses. They don't want to borrow 250,000. Uh, this is an area of lending where the Fed has never ever in its history been involved or anything close to it. Uh, it really, it was starting from ground zero trying to develop a team, a methodology, terms, and so on uh, to do this. And it took it a long time. I'm not sure they've made a loan yet. They're open for business. They've circulated terms. They're inviting applications. Whether they've yet made a single loan, uh, I don't know. But they will. They will uh, do that. So to your question, what was the most extreme thing in the many things the Fed has announced, that was it. Right. So, so you talked about, um, you know, is what some have referred to as Main Street QE, Main Street quantitative easing, and obviously this is kind of an unprecedented policy for the Fed. What do you think that instituting this policy means uh, for the power and authority of the Fed moving forward? Do you think there's um, there's going to be a change in public perception of what exactly the Fed can do and what the Fed's power is? Yeah, it's a really good question, Sam. We can look back 12 years ago or 10 years ago, let's say 10 years ago, after the Fed did the many things to rescue the economy in 2008, 2009. Beginning in 2010, there was a backlash against the Fed because some people, first, some people had never heard of the Fed, all of a sudden there was this big agency doing all sorts of things. Even the people that had heard of the Fed didn't know that it had the kind of powers to lend in an emergency. 
that it did. And there was a negative uh, blowback, both from Republicans and Democrats uh, at the time, that why should uh, a bunch of unelected technocrats have this kind of power? Shouldn't those kinds of decisions be up to the Congress? And so during the debate over what became the Dodd-Frank Act, there were many, many uh, suggestions and provisions and amendments to clip the Fed's wings in a variety of ways. Uh, Chairman Bernanke somehow, and one day there'll be a nice magazine article or book about this, uh, managed to wriggle out. And at the end of the day, the Fed wound up in the actual Dodd-Frank Act with more regulatory and supervisory power than it started. And only very vague, and I thought probably unimportant, though other people didn't agree, limits on its emergency lending authority. So instead of being able to pick a particular company, you may remember AIG, the big insurance company that got a huge loan uh, from the Fed. Instead of being able to do that, which is now illegal, the Fed can only lend to broad classes of companies. So the first test case of that came this March, when the Treasury and, and oh, and the Secretary of the Treasury has to give them permission. So the first test case of that came this March, and boy, the Treasury Secretary was falling over himself to give permission. I give you permission to do this, that, anything, to try to uh, uh, save the economy. Um, an interesting question, once the dust settles on this horrible episode, and that's going to be a while, is whether there'll be another uh, blowback against the Fed. The Fed has shown even more power to lend to even a greater variety of uh, companies than it did in 2008-9, and it remains to be seen if we will have uh, uh, political sentiment on either side of the aisle saying the Fed is just too powerful. Um, this goes to one of the questions that Tiger started with at the beginning, which is the effect on inequality. One thing that saving the financial system does is give a big boost to the stock market. It's not like the Fed is trying to boost the stock market, but if you come in as the emergency brigade, the fire brigade and put out the fires in the financial system, people that trade stocks say, woo, thank you very much. I feel much better about the safety of the financial system and stock prices go up and they did go up. Obviously that enriches the rich. Poor people don't own stocks. Only about half of Americans own stock, and a lot of that is inside their pension funds. They don't even know about it, uh, frankly. So the, when the stock market goes up, the rich get richer. And, so, and that was one of the side effects of what the Fed did in the financial crisis, and it's one of the side effects of what the Fed is doing right now. And um, that will be one reason, I think, for potential blowback. Um, at some time down the road.
Professor Blinder, you truly brought in some very interesting points, and I think maybe we can gradually try to unpack some of them. The first point uh, is about the political blowback, and as you rightly mentioned, today's crisis is not one created by housing bubbles or elaborate financial instruments, so we should generally expect less resentment uh, towards the financial elites, you know, like the 2008-2009 Occupy Wall Street movement. Mm -hmm. uh, but do you s still expect a reaction against financial elites or, or major corporations kind of similar to the one we saw from the 2008 crisis in a sense yeah. that uh, many people feel like it's, it's still a time where it's heads they win and tails we lose logic uh, yeah. that, that, that operates in American economy. Yeah, and you can see evidence for that already, Tiger. And every time Chairman Powell faces questions, including in that interview that you mentioned, um, somebody asked him about helping the people that don't need help, helping the rich, and isn't the Fed exacerbating inequality? He gives a good ex answer to that, I think, which is that to the extent that the Fed can mitigate the severity of the recession, this rece recessions in general, and this recession in particular, are hit hitting low-wage workers really, really hard. These so-called, quote, essential workers is a great term. They're essential. They stack groceries shelves, they deliver Amazon packages, um, uh, and uh, so on. And they work in the kitchens of restaurants that are doing takeout. These are not rich people. And so what he, what he gives an answer to that is one of the things that our policy, the Fed's policies are doing is helping to provide more jobs to those people or bringing them back to work. And that's true. But it doesn't obviate the fact that the Fed is lending to big institutions, major corporations. Even with the Main Street, as I was saying, they're not the just, I guess what I should have said before, the distinction between what puts a loan into the Main Street facility versus something else is the Main Street companies are too small to go to the public markets and float bonds. Only a very small number of companies can do that. The Fed takes care of them by propping, is now taking care of them by propping up the bond market. So you can think of that as the fortune, not the fortune, the S&P 500 or something like that, not literally, but something like that. So the Fed is helping them. And even in the Main Street uh, facility, once it gets started, it's going to be helping companies that have 10, 5, 2,000 employees. Meanwhile, the corner grocer is going bankrupt. Um, and so I think there is a real potential for blowback there. Do you think that compared to um, the financial policies in 2008 and 2009, the policies now are, are doing a better job of getting money into Main Street rather than just um, getting money to the financial systems, to the bank? Banks? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, yes, but only a little bit. You know, if you, if you think of the pipes that the Fed has into the economy, they attach to big financial institutions, especially banks. And that's the easy thing for the Fed to do, to shoot out money. They go into the capital markets, they go to the banks, and so on. Um, I hate to use this phrase, some of that will trickle down to smaller entities, and it does. And it helps, I mean, believe me, small businesses in America 
would be in even worse shape today were it not for what the Fed is doing. But that's, a nice, that's one thing to say, but people in those small businesses can look out the window and see or read the newspapers and see the huge amount of support that the Fed is giving to gigantic financial institutions and feel a little jealous about that. That's very, very understandable. Uh, Professor Bliner, just a little bit more about uh, the, the bailout packages to big financial firms or, or big corporations today. I, I think part of the problem with the relief in 2008 is that many of the bailouts came with very little strings attached. So vast sums of money were injected into banks uh, with the hope that they would increase lending, but actually nowhere did they actually uh, require to do so. And today, a lot of people are worried that the CARES Act, which is the, the fiscal stimulus package, contains some language for the giant co corporations uh, not to issue dividends, not to do stock buybacks, but still uh, many are fearing that the enforcement is very hard. So I would love to just hear a little bit more of your thoughts. Why couldn't the Fed and the Treasury be a little bit more forceful and come in and say, hey, I'll give you this short-term funding, but you need to commit, let's say, 15% of your profits into R&D or CapEx, where you need to put 10% of the profits uh, into helping the union or something so that mm -hmm. uh, inequality could be helped. So why, why didn't we come in more forceful with, with those measures? Well, I'm tempted to give you a one-word answer, which is Trump. <laughs> um, you can imagine a different administration that would have had a lot more sympathy with the kinds of strings and provisions you're talking about. The Trump administration has none, uh, no sympathy. The Fed has little to no ability to move the administration. The Fed deals mostly with the Treasury. So we talk about the administration. We mainly mean uh, the Treasury. But the Treasury is literally a half a block away from the White House, literally. And figuratively, it's even closer. Uh, so you're dealing with the Secretary of the Treasury, who's the representative of the President of the United States. And he has shown himself to be not very sympathetic to this. Look, there are even smaller things like um, monitoring and reporting, being transparent about who's getting the loans. It's like pulling teeth. The Fed wants to be transparent about things like that. The Treasury has been very unwilling to uh, be transparent. They'd rather fire the inspector general or not have an inspector general to look over their uh, shoulders. And there's not too much the Fed can do about that. I mean, what, what could the Fed do about it? The Fed could say, look, if that's the terms you're putting, we're not gonna participate in this. We're taking our marbles and going home. Well, they're not gonna do that. Uh, they're not going to do it both for um, governmental reasons, you could call them political reasons. You know, the Fed's not elected, the president and the Congress are. Um, or you could say it's for very important optical reasons that the sure, one really sure way to cause a financial panic is for the markets to see the Treasury and the Fed are at war with one another. I mean, you could really tank markets with that. And, and so the Fed is not going to do that. The Fed is going to have to live with whatever, whatever terms the Treasury uh, sets out. Now, you probably noticed that in the second wave of the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program, 
there was a set aside for small businesses, a minority owned businesses. It remains to be seen how effective that is. And if there's a third wave of PPP, which is not certain at this point, but I think it looks likely there'll probably be more of that. So there'll be more trickle down. The other thing you probably noticed that happened early on is some big companies that understood the ins and outs of uh, banking in Washington jumped into the PPP right away. And a number of them were shamed out of it. They gave the money back. Uh, so, you know, uh, these things were, I'm sounding a little unforgiving. These things were concocted on the fly very fast. And when you do that, you're going to make a mistake, right? Just think of the difference between having a term paper that you can work on for two weeks and then the same, giving you the same assignment saying you need to have this by five o'clock tonight, right? You can do a better job when you have more time. And that's true of students writing papers, and that's certainly true of uh, members of Congress writing laws. Of course, and, and you know, as we're talking about these unprecedented policies, I, I think it's fitting to maybe ask about what you think about long-term effects. I, I know you mentioned in a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, that you're commonly asked so-called, in quotes, Scarlett O'Hara questions uh, about the long-term effects of the Fed's policies specifically on the def on the deficit and on inflation and you argue that these potential issues are not particularly pressing or worrisome and that there are questions to be dealt with after the crisis has been averted right would you mind explaining a bit more about your reasoning okay sure let's take them separately the deficit is the budget deficit is not about the fed it's about the political government the congress and the president deciding how much to spend how much to tax a huge amount of spending has been necessary and very appropriate in this uh, pandemic. Look, we're having likely a decline in GDP of approximately half what happened in the Great Depression. The Great Depression, it took four years from the top to the bottom. In this case, it's taking about two months from the top to the bottom. So this is an incredible calamity and people need help. People need help really badly. And they need it fast. And they need a lot of it. It's a big country. Um, so the question for the political government, and I'll come to the Fed next, uh, question for the political government is how much are we willing to spend on these things? And the answer in the US so far has been a lot. Um, and you know, many other detailed questions. What are we going to spend it on, uh, et cetera? And the other question is, what's our borrowing capacity? Can we actually go to the world capital markets and borrow this much money? The reason I call this a Scarlett O'Hara question, I'll worry about it tomorrow, is that the answer to that question, how much can, can we borrow this much money, is clearly yes. And you only have to look at the interest rates on Treasury debt to see that we are not having to pay we the u.s government are not having to pay high interest rates to borrow this money so eventually with there may be some capacity where the if this keeps up for years i hope it won't the um financial markets 
people in financial markets start being less willing to buy U.S. government debt. I think we're a long way from that. The other uh, Scarlett O'Hara question is worrying about inflation. Uh, you heard actually much more about this, the financial crisis 12 years ago. You hear a little bit about it now. The Fed is uh, acquiring assets like MAD. That means it's blowing up uh, bank reserves like MAD, creating tremendous amounts of liquidity all over the place. If you like to look at the money supply, the money supply is growing fast. Also, though nobody's, not too many people pay attention to the money supply any longer. And the question is, won't that lead to inflation eventually? So the first point is eventually, that's why it's a Scarlett O'Hara question. This is not gonna happen in a weak economy. We're having a mini, no one knows what to call this yet, a mini depression, a super recession, whatever. You don't get inflation in an environment like that. Businesses are scrambling for customers. They're not gonna be jacking up prices with a few exceptions here and there like Purell and stuff like that. I don't think it was the Purell company. It was people grabbing it and then trying to resell it. But basically a, an economy that is struggling so badly is not gonna produce inflation. Now. This is not gonna last forever, this super recession or mini depression or, or whatever it is. And as the economy improves, the outlook for raising prices will improve for businesses. And with all that liquidity, you could see inflation going up, could see. Let me pursue that a second. If you do, it's gonna be up to the Fed to stand against it. By, by withdrawing some of the liquidity that is provided on an emergency basis. And that's sort of why I call it a Scarlett O'Hara question. Maybe three, four, five, seven years down the road, the Fed will have to do something like that to prevent inflation. So that's sort of the main answer. The secondary answer is a little bit puzzling even to economists, and it's this. We had a similar um, sequence of events in the financial crisis. The Fed wound up buying huge amounts of assets, blowing up banks' balance sheets, the money supply increased, et cetera, et cetera. And that all happened between 2009 and 2014. And on the eve of the catastrophe in the winter of 2019-20, we are still waiting for any signs of inflation, right? So what I just said, well, the Fed may years from now have to take actions to curb the inflation. After the financial crisis, it never did. <clears throat> and maybe it never will need to again. Yeah, I think economists are really puzzled why unemployment has been you know, low for so long and inflation has also been so low so long, even though the Fed has That's injected so much. Liquidity. But I think since we're on this topic of, of, I suppose, the past 10 years of economic history, maybe I could ask you one more question about another important legacy left by the Fed in, in the wake of 2000 financial crisis, which is the expansion, the dramatic expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. It, it, it made a lot of sense initially because if the private sector went into disorder, uh, then the public sector should step in and, uh, you know, whether it's buy assets or whether help the, the economy or so. Uh, but then when the Fed actually tried to uh, 
it just kept feeling uh, compelled to further expand it and further expand it. And I think uh, last Thursday on, on by by this kind of, by this week or so, we're already at seven trillion dollars uh, in in, mm -hmm. in in Fed's balance sheet. Uh, there does not seem to be a very um, realistic way about how to exit this dramatic expansion. So I would love to ask your thoughts on that. And I suppose even the greater question is, do you think after this dramatic expansion of th this movement of financialization in the past few years and decades of American economic history that America's economy right now is effectively being front run by, by finance and rather than the real economy? Okay, let me take those two questions uh, separately. The, the Fed did blow up its balance sheet between 2008 and 2014 by a lot. By the way, if you look at percentages, it was much more. It started at about 900 billion, went up by a factor of five to four and a half trillion. We're not going up by a factor of five here. We're going up a lot. Um, it then, starting in 2015, started gradually and gingerly and cautiously shrinking its balance sheet. It didn't get very far. If I, I'd have to look up the numbers. I think it shrunk the balance sheet by about one-sixth or something like that. If there's tremendous blow up, a little bit of pullback. And it would have kept doing that if it wasn't for this uh, calamity that we've fallen back. Uh, that we've fallen into. So part of your answer is you do it only when the economy is strong enough and you do it cautiously so you don't cause a recession. So in terms of clawing back some of what you uh, did before. Your question about the financialization of the uh, U.S. Of, of, of various economies, but especially the U.S. economy is a good one. And it's been asked for a long time this has nothing to do with the pandemic. If anything, the pandemic is pushing the other way. The real side is getting all the attention. But I think you have a very valid point. Um, not everybody agrees with this, but I think in a number of dimensions, we have let or encouraged, it's a combination of the two, the financial system to grow too large we're almost to the point where the, you know, the tail is wagging the dog. Not in the pandemic, but in other, uh, in other times. Um, finance is supposed to lubricate the economy and make the real side work better. That's the basic idea. Um, instead, it has grown tremendously so the financial sector is a bigger share of the economy than it was. Uh, I hate to say this in front of two Princeton seniors. Uh, seniors? Are you both rising seniors? Anyway, two Princeton undergraduates. The financial system gobbles up a huge amount of the young talent. It may not be you two fellows, but many of your classmates when they graduate are going into the financial system. And that's not new. This has been happening for two decades or something like that. Uh, that means so much less talent going into science and engineering and a variety of other things that people could do, or even just uh, non-financial corporations. I'll, I'll show you how old I am. When I graduated from Princeton right after the Civil War, 
a very large number of graduating seniors went to work for non-financial corporations, General Electric, General Motors, Procter & Gamble, big companies, the ones that weren't going on for further education. That sort of stopped in the 1980s and the, the students just started flocking to Wall Street. So that's one aspect of it. Second as, uh, aspect of it is the huge amount of attention that is paid, let's just say, to the stock market. You know, there are worse things uh, than that, I suppose, and it's not harmful per se, but it does get a number of people identifying the stock market with the economy. So when the stock market goes up, the economy must be great. When the stock market goes down, the economy must be bad. It's not true. The stock market bottomed on, I'm pretty sure the day was March 23rd. It was a very sharp crash and ha has risen, has gotten most of that loss back. It's going up and down. I think today it's going down, one day it goes up. I mean, it bounces around. But by and large, it's gone up quite a bit from, let's just say, March 23rd to June 23rd. Uh, that doesn't mean the economy got great during that period. Far from it. We're having a catastrophic rise in unemployment. Um, but you've got people, you know, I could start naming names in the administration that want to convince you and other Americans that because the stock market is good, the economy is good. It's not true. And you're related to that point. Um, some people have been saying that the Fed is the market now, that the market isn't driven by economic fundamentals, but rather by Fed announcements. Do, do you think that assessment is true? And if so, do you think it, it's a major issue to be worried about? I don't think it's true, but what is true is that what the Fed is doing or is likely to do is one of the many things that is uh, relevant to the valuation of financial assets. So yes, people in markets look at what the Fed is likely to do and that, has, that can have serious effects on stock and bond prices. But the other thing you probably noticed over the past months is that announcements about vaccines or whether the pandemic curve is going up or down is also moving the stock market, as it should. Those things are probably actually more important to the health of the economy over a period, not measured in days, but measured in months and years than uh, stock prices are, or what the Fed said on Tuesday uh, as compared to the previous Friday. But it's certainly quite rational for financial uh, prices to move and maybe move sharply in response to Federal Reserve actions or statements. Uh, Professor Blinder, have you heard about the rise of day traders recently? Have you, have you followed the debate? Uh, I'm not. Day traders have been around for a long time. Uh, and you know, my basic view is they're probably harmless. They will on average lose money because of the commissions they pay. Uh, some will make money, 
and other people will hear about, oh, Joe made all this money day trading and they'll get attracted to uh, day trading. But it's one of the, so I don't, I'm not against it. Let people, you know, people go to gambling casinos. That's fine with me. Um, what you don't, what it illustrates, it's another illustration of you don't want to take daily movements in the stock market too seriously as real indicators of the economy. They're dominated by day traders and people like that, the day-to-day -day movements. Uh, Professor Blind, I know you have to go soon, so I thought maybe we can wrap up with this question. I mean, you recently had this wonderful discussion with Fed Chairman Jerome Powell uh, on the Griswold Center's webinar, and, and you guys both briefly mentioned this idea of how people have rising expectation for the Fed to lead uh, to mission creep and potentially even leading to the Fed being given the mission impossibles. Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more your thoughts on what you think the Fed might or might not do. I mean, maybe not market predictions, but just in terms of what you think, uh, just kind of elaborate on this idea and your, some of your predictions for, for the near term. Yeah, well, we've already mentioned the Main Street facilities, which are now incipient or about to start, where the Fed is basically working through banks, making loans to uh, medium-sized, let's call them, businesses, which is something the Fed, a business the Fed's going to want to get out of as soon as the emergency is over. The same could be said about, um, first of all, less than top quality corporate bonds, and then after that, corporate bonds in general. The Fed doesn't want to be buying things like that. It's doing this only on an emergency. These are, ish, these are examples of mission creep. Um, where the Fed is um, becoming a major player, and in some cases, you mentioned this before, Tiger, the major player in a number of financial markets. The Fed doesn't believe that that's their business, it's not what they want to do, but they also understand that when uh, markets are on the verge of collapse, and if they collapse, that's gonna have tremendous deleterious effects on the real economy, the Fed may have to step in and prevent those uh, collapses. So all of those are mission creep. There are other things. I mean, I get, even before the crisis, I get several emails a day, not a day, a week, several emails a week with suggestions for what the Fed should do, like help the poor, build infrastructure, you know, any good climate change, any good cause. Um, and these are all good causes, but we have a division of labor in our government. And th those things are not the job of the Federal Reserve. The name of our podcast show is Policy Punchline. So we really have to ask you at the very end of the show, uh, what would be your punchline here? It could be about the Fed. It could be about policymaking in COVID's time. It could be about anything that you may feel passionate to convey to our listeners. My punchline would be that not that the whole economic task would be a little less difficult. I don't want to say easy. Nothing's going to make it easy. If we could get people in the administration to stop telling the population that this is over, take off your mask, go to a bar, and have fun. Um, 
that looks to be causing an upsurge in cases in more than half the states in the country. Uh, you know, when I see that, I want to cry uh, because it's going to kill people. Uh, and it's not true. And just to tie that to economics, we're only going to get the economy functioning well when we get the disease under control. Eventually, there'll be a vaccine. But I don't know, and nobody knows what that eventually will be. We have to do things before we get the vaccine. And if spokesmen for the US government keep telling people it's over, go back to partying, um, it just makes that worse. Well, thank you for that wonderful message, Professor Blinder, and for drawing some very nuanced distinctions between what the real economy is, what the stock market is, what uh, the economy is, what the Fed should do, and, and all, all sorts of things. So thanks so much for talking to Sam and I today. You're very welcome. Be well, guys. Uh, and, and thanks for joining me remotely as well, Sam, for, for co-hosting the show. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and this, hmm? Thank you so much, Professor Binder. And, and I, th I think one quick thing maybe just, just to, to tell you about is like, I don't know if you watched uh, uh, Elon Musk uh, on, on YouTube, but he was uh, having this podcast interview with Joe Rogan. And he gave this whole rant about he, how he's not very impressed by Warren Buffett because Warren Buffett just basically allocates capital and doesn't really create anything. And he just plays finance. So it <laughs> kind of resonates with what you were saying. So yep. thanks so much for joining us. All right. You're welcome. Bye now. Take care. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, follow and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, that was our interview with Professor Alan Blinder. He was the former vice chair of the Federal Reserve System and now an economics professor at Princeton. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.